what's going to save us or kill us is the choices that we all make. The choices that we make in our everyday food choices, but also the choices that we make whether we're going to become part of the solution or not. Whether we're going to find our own unique voices and skills and talents and use our resources in a way that is moving us towards a humane and sustainable future or moving us in an accelerated path to destruction. That's Nathan Runkel, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how's it going? What's happening? How are you? Welcome to the show, to my podcast, the show where each week I dive deep with the most interesting trailblazing thought leaders across a wide swath of specialties, including wellness, fitness, medicine, mindfulness, addiction, recovery, sports, entertainment, athletics, entrepreneurship, and in the case of today's guest, social advocacy. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. And today I'm sitting down with Nathan Runkel. Nathan is an animal rights advocate. He is the founder and executive director of Mercy for Animals, which is an organization that he founded when he was just 15 years old that has grown into this amazing leading international force in the prevention of cruelty to farmed animals and the promotion of compassionate food choices and policies. Nathan is a nationally recognized speaker, He's presented at many a prestigious university and conference. He's been featured in hundreds of prominent television, radio, and newspaper outlets, and has spent decades working alongside elected officials, corporate executives, heads of international organizations, academics, farmers, celebrities, and film producers, all to pass landmark legislation and implement animal welfare policy changes. Uh, Nathan was named one of the country's top 20 activists under 30 years old. And at the age of just 25, he became the youngest person ever inducted into the U.S. Animal Rights Hall of Fame. Uh, and he's got a new book out. It's aptly titled Mercy for Animals. Uh, and it not only chronicles Nathan's very interesting personal story as a grassroots activist, but it also provides a quite compelling look at the history and the current state of animal welfare and the industrial complex known as factory farming and the implications of factory farming on not only animal well-being, but planetary well-being, environmental well-being, and human health as well. Got a couple things I wanna say about Nathan and this conversation before we dive into it, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, 
and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, Nathan, Nathan Runkle. Uh, this conversation is great. It tracks Nathan's personal story as a guy who really knew what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do with his life from a very early age, I think as far back as he can even recall, uh, again, founding Mercy for Animals in his early teens. And we discuss all kinds of things. We discuss the current state and implications of factory farming on animal, human, and planetary health. We talk about his undercover work. We talk about the regulatory landscape that governs our food systems. And also, we get into the implications of the clean meat movement on the future of food, and that's a really fascinating discourse. So 
With that being said, without further ado, let's talk to Nathan. It's super nice to uh, have you in the podcast studio. Thanks for making the trip out. Excited to talk to you. It's beautiful out here. Yeah, it's my honor. Thanks. Good. Well, there's so much to unpack here. Um, but first, before we even get into it, I wanted to hear a little bit about you being honored by the LA City Council the other day. Yeah, it was quite an honor. Um, I have been at a lot of government buildings, usually outside protesting things. <laughs> they actually <laughs> let you in the front door? Yeah. <laughs> Or, um, you know, uh, fighting charges for <laughs> being arrested for fighting on behalf of animals. So to be honored by the city of Los Angeles for my nearly two decades of work was mm -hmm. um, pretty phenomenal. And they said some really nice things um, about me and the organization. And, you know, L.A. has led the way in, in, in many regards for animal protection issues. Mm -hmm. the, the same city council that gave me this award voted unanimously to ban bull hooks, uh, you know, these mm -hmm. weapons that are used against elephants and circuses that really was the beginning of the end for circuses right. in Ringling Los Angeles Brothers. and the U.S., mm -hmm. across the U.S. So, um, yeah, it's nice to be recognized. That's that cool. Way. And like Eric Garcetti was there and everything. He was, you yeah. You got the photo op. I got the photo op with the mayor, yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> legit now. <laughs> yes. It's yes. all come full circle for you. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, let's go Let's go back to the beginning. Um, I mean, this, you know, your, your life as an animal rights activist um, is not something that, you know, it's not a bandwagon that you jumped on because it was Vogue. I mean, this is like born and bred and, you know, heavily wound into your DNA from almost day one for you. I mean, it's yeah. crazy how far back <laughs> this, this goes with you. I think it does. It, it very well could be in my, my DNA. I, I talk in the book about the fact that I was delivered by a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad, Mark, graduated vet school from OSU and um, met my mom at a horseback riding camp that my dad used to, to run. So both of my parents were very hands-on with animals. And for me, I, um, fly. That fly I have a fly, knows friend. fly friend who <laughs> knows friend. that he's not, he's not going to be attacked. Right. <laughs> very curious about what's happening here. Um, but for me, you know, being born on a farm in rural Ohio, a village of less than 2,000 people, I was surrounded by animals from my earliest childhood memory, and I always was drawn to them. I always loved animals. I could always sort of put myself in their place and imagine even for a moment what life must be like for them. Mm -hmm. And that instilled a, a great level of empathy within me for for all animals mm -hmm. so that was that was sort of the the basis um and then this fly really is I know, he quite really, interested he, he, he <laughs> i don't know what to do about that but we'll, we'll work it out yeah i mean i think you you just came out of the womb very sensitive to that almost like it's a past life thing like you know there was never any question about what your life was going to be about it's true. It's true. And, you know, reflecting back on, on starting the organization uh, when I was 15 and becoming a veteran when I was 11, it all just sort of seems like it was always meant to be. And people will say, oh my gosh, that was so young. Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. For me, it never felt like that. It just always felt like a natural calling. I was always being pulled in that direction. It was 
it wasn't really a choice. It was the only option. Right. The calling. And the calling, yeah. your parents, particularly your mom, was super supportive. I mean, it seems like from the book, you know, she was your champion from day one. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to have two parents who I think their um, sort of philosophy on raising children, my sister and I, was it's your life, make your decisions, and we'll be here to support you. Mm-hmm. And being a vegan or becoming vegan, starting an animal rights organization, I think was something that my mother, at least initially, was was very proud of. I think it took my dad a while to to sort of come around and and fully understand the scope of of the work and and why it was so meaningful. But um, yeah, a lot of pride um, from the family. So you grow up on this farm in rural Ohio, coming from a long line of Ohio farmers that date back, you know, generation after generation. So you grow up with all these animals and you're the kid who's, you know, bringing home every wounded animal you can find. And we have Caesar, the, the, the rat who becomes (laughs) your best friend. And, and so you're that guy, right? Yeah. From the beginning, (laughs) from the beginning and, and, and around livestock animals from Mm -hmm. a very early age too, but it was a very different time in terms of how those animals were raised and treated that's right so i would rescue you know birds that would fall out of trees i'd find uh you know feral cats in the barn and we'd get them adopted there were just always animals around that i was sort of nurturing and and taking care of and caesar the rat that you mentioned um was this rat that i rescued from our neighbors who bred animals to be used in laboratory experiments and he came home with me when I was six years old and he would sit on my shoulder and just became my best friend. And it was Caesar who really taught me that all animals have personalities and minds. They feel loneliness and joy and they have a sense of curiosity and they crave freedom. It's not just dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. And I would I would have friends come over and I would be so excited for them to meet Caesar because he was so important to me. But most of them would be really sort of terrified of him and they would shriek in horror at the sight of his tail. Like people couldn't get over the sight of a rat's tail. And so at this young age, I started to see that we bring a lot of prejudice to the table with animals and we arbitrarily call some pests and others pets. And so Caesar challenged that notion for me of why we extend our consideration for some animals, but not others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speciesism is a a very bizarre, weird, psychological phenomenon, you know? And as somebody who was raised around pigs and cows and these animals had names, it was not unusual for you to observe the bond that transpired between human and animal, but that didn't extend to the rat, right? So it's yeah. kind of your first exposure to that idea and that um, differentiation that we kind of psychologically and mentally yeah. um, have, which is which is weird. But the thing, you know, this whole kind of uh, path that you're on seems to have crystallized around this one event that takes place uh, around a dissection. That's right. So can you know, like walk us through that story? Yeah, so I was 15 years old and again, farming community, 2000 people at the high school, there's an agriculture class and the teacher of the class is a pig farmer, his name's uh, Mr. Jenkins. 
and he raises about 11,000 pigs. So he has a very large scale um, operation that he's running. Now, one May morning in 1999, Mr. Jenkins decided that they're going to do a dissection project and he's going to kill some baby piglets on his farm to use. Now he arrives to the school with this bucket filled with baby piglets that are supposed to be dead. He goes into the classroom, he sits the bucket down, and a student walks over and notices that one of the piglets is still alive. In fact, she's standing on top of the others in this, this bucket. So the teacher um, instructs the, the student to, to do something about it. He, he grabs the piglet by her hind legs and slams her head first into the ground. Mm. Now this is a, a senior in the class who did part-time work on Mr. Jenkins' pig farm. Now this piglet still didn't die, her skull was now fractured. She was bleeding out of the mouth. She was just in horrible distress. So a few of the students were just sickened by what they had seen. They took this baby piglet and they left the classroom. They went down the hall to another teacher's room. Her name was Molly Fearing. And she was a first year teacher at the school. She was known as being the vegetarian who cares about animals. Mm -hmm. So Molly, with this baby piglet cradled in her arms, left the school and went to a local veterinarian about 10 minutes away and had the piglet euthanized. Molly's next step was to the sheriff's department where she said, look, this piglet was just killed in this horrible way. There should be animal cruelty charges filed. And eventually charges were filed against Mr. Jenkins, not, not the student himself. It went to court, and it was a big deal in this agriculture community, as you could imagine. Right, it becomes this big news story that like kind of polarizes yeah. your town. Right, so it's uh, it's in the paper. I mean, local uh, TV stations are doing stories about it. Um, there are letters to the editor of the local papers. It's just you know the tensions are, are rising, and the first day of that trial, the benches are packed uh, at, at court with pig farmers that show up to rally behind Mr. Jenkins. They don't want animal advocates telling them what to do. They don't want, you know, this type of criticism for their practices. Mm -hmm. In the, the very first day of that trial, those charges were dismissed. And the reason that they were dismissed is because in Ohio, like at least 30 other states, if something is considered, quote, standard agricultural practice, it's exempt from cruelty prosecution. Mm -hmm. And this practice of slamming piglets into the ground head first is standard practice. It's deemed legal and we still find it all across the country when we go into factory farms. So that, that case illustrated to me that there needed to be an organization that would give a voice to, to farmed animals. And it was really clear to me that if this had been a puppy or a kitten, the outcome would have been very different right. of that. Um, it wouldn't have been tolerated. They, there would have probably been um, perhaps jail time, certainly psychiatric evaluation would have been suggested, probably um, a prohibition of owning animals. But because it was a piglet, it was just deemed common business, standard practices. Right, like if a, if a teenager or a preteen did that to a dog, they would, right. they would say, this is the, you know, this is, you know, this kid's a, this kid's a potential serial killer. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we should, we should pay attention to what this kid is doing. And it's interesting, yeah. the differentiation in, in the treatment and the way we think about these things. And also the lack of, you know, defined terms when it mm -hmm. comes to standard agricultural practices, right? Like, that's what right. does that mean? It casts this broad net and so much can fall underneath that. And that's still, 
you know, a battle that I know, you know, you and, and, and MFA are waging. It's, it's true because what it does is it hands over the authority to decide what is acceptable and what is legal to the very industries and individuals that profit off of these animals. And so they're always going to, to do what's the cheapest and the fastest, not what is in the best interest of the animals. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's similar to handing over authority to chemical companies to decide what's an appropriate amount of toxic chemicals to put into the groundwater or, you know, into the air. Like most people would consider that to be ridiculous. There has to be some sort of regulation or oversight, right. but for, for animals, that's what's happening. Right. Yeah, totally. Fox so you're, watching the house. you're how old at this point? 15. You're 15. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, I can't uh, even drive yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and there's no Facebook or, or social media yet. Yeah. None of that's online yet. <laughs> um, although it was soon to come, soon right? To come, Cause yeah. you're, you're young. Uh, but it's interesting that not only are you kind of carrying this frequency of already, you know, pursuing this path and being interested in this world, this huge thing happens that you find yourself right in the, in the middle of, it's like this, you know, perfect storm of events from which yeah. to birth, you know, mercy for animals, which you created at age 15, which I did not know. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, at 15, you create this organization now that you are, what do you have 130 employees in like 60 countries or something? How many six, countries? Six, six countries, countries, six countries, but big ones. Yeah. Big, big countries. <laughs> I mean, this was, this was created when you were 15 years old. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It's, it is, it is a little bit um, unbelievable. It, it's been, it's been my life's work. It's been 18 mm -hmm. years now um, since, since starting the organization, but it has been the most fulfilling work, the most meaningful work, um, challenging work. But, you know, I, the organization, and, and, and obviously there are so many people that are part of the organization. I'm, you know, one person sort of holding space and, and doing what I can for it. It's, 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 the organization is made up of you know, thousands of volunteers, thousands of people that donate money, undercover investigators. Like it's, it's a, it's a wide network of really incredible individuals, but the progress that we've helped, um, push forward is, is, um, really shifting the game for farmed animals. Um, yeah, there's no question about it. So, you know, we'll get back to the timeline, yeah. but I think it would be worthwhile to kind of explain the mission statement yeah. of mercy for animals and also to try to contextualize the role of MFA uh, in comparison to the other organizations out there like PETA and um, Compassion Over Killing and yeah. Humane Society, you know, and the like. So the, the mission of Mercy for Animals is to prevent cruelty to farmed animals and promote compassionate food choices and policies. So we do that through four program areas. One is undercover investigations. And this is one of the things that we're most known for sending people into factory farms, slaughterhouses, livestock auctions, hatcheries, wired with hidden cameras, and then working sometimes for months on end mm -hmm. and documenting how these animals are crammed in cages where they can't turn around, mutilated without painkillers, separated from their families, have their throats slow while they're conscious in slaughterhouses. And using that evidence to then support our other program areas, the second being legal advocacy. So one, enforcing the very, very few bare bones state laws that are on the books to protect farmed animals, but more importantly, pushing for stronger 
laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I said, we have these common farming exemptions that mean that you can essentially do anything to farm animals as long as a lot of people are doing it. Um, things that would be illegal if they were dogs or cats. And we have most of the animals kept in confined systems where they you know, can't engage in natural behaviors. They have no access to the outdoors. So pushing for, for more legal protection for these animals. The fourth or the third area is corporate outreach. So getting big companies like Walmart and McDonald's to end the worst forms of abuse that animals endure on, on factory farms, adhering to the internationally accepted um, five freedoms. So like freedom from hunger and thirst, pain, pain and discomfort, freedom uh, for natural movement, um, those types of things. But in practice, that meaning an end to battery cages for egg-laying hens where five, six, seven birds are kept in cages the size of a file cabinet drawer, mm-hmm. can't spread their wings, can't walk, can't perch, roost, dust bathe, anything natural. Ending uh, the confinement of mother sows in gestation crates where they can't turn around and, and, and confinement of baby calves in veal crates. Ending the mutilation of animals, so no uh, tail docking, uh, no castration without pain relief, and um, changing the genetics of these animals. You know, these animals are now really Frankenstein animals. They've been bred to grow so large and so fast they can't even walk naturally oftentimes. And ending the the really horrific um, slaughter of, of chickens, which have no federal protection um, at slaughter. There's not a single federal law for any farmed animals uh, during their lives on the farm. Right. Like you're just, I don't want you to just gloss over that fact because that's really kind of amazing and illustrative of, of where we are. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of state laws, uh, and those state laws vary of course, but no, there's no federal legislation on how we regulate how these animals are treated, which is, it just seems weird and bizarre. It is. And so no federal regulation for how farmed animals are treated on the farm. There are two, two laws, one regarding transportation, which is the last, you know, day or so of the animal's lives. And, and that, that, that law is just so poorly enforced and almost meaningless. Right. And then you 28, they can't be in a truck for longer than 28 hours or something like that. That's right? right. That's right. And, and then there's the humane methods of slaughter act, which completely exempts 98% 98% of the animals that are killed for food, land animals, almost all, because it doesn't include fish either. So that that basic law uh, says that these animals are supposed to be rendered unconscious before their throats are slit. But for for birds, the, the typical way in which they're killed is they're dumped out of crates onto these moving conveyor belts. Workers snap them into shackles by their fragile legs. Many of them have broken bones and, and bruising. And then they go through an electrified vat of water, which paralyzes the birds. And then they have their throat slit by, by a spinning blade. And a lot of these, these birds are still alive when they go into scalding tanks of water. The USDA on their own estimates, which are entirely, you know, too low, say that at least a million animals a year are scalded alive at the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth program area <laughs> is education work. So this is really focused on informing informing people about where their food comes from and mm-hmm. who they're eating. And the fact that, that farmed animals, again, they have rich emotional lives, they're intelligent, they, they matter, their, their lives matter, the treatment of them matters, and that we can, we can make compassionate food choices when we sit down to eat. So a lot of our education work is based on um, promoting a plant-based diet, encouraging people to crowd meat off of the plate and, and, and really um, eat plants 
as a way of, of sparing animals from the suffering that, that we're talking about. Right. And why did you decide to focus exclusively on farmed animals? Well, they are the 99%. Um, you know, we, we talk so much about companion animals and dogs and cats. Half of us share our homes with them. Half of those animals will receive Christmas gifts this holiday season. You know, we spend billions of dollars on their care and elective surgeries. We live in a, in a, in a, in a world, in a, in a country of people who love animals. But really, when people say that, they're mostly talking about dogs and cats because those are who we know as individuals and those are who are most present in our lives. We come home to them. But when we're really talking about animals we're talking about farmed animals mm -hmm. uh, 3000 times as many farmed animals are killed in the united states than dogs and cats are euthanized in shelters 3000 to 1 you know we're talking about over 9 billion of them every right. single year in the us it's almost 300 every second so why farm animals because because all of these animals matter and we only have so much time and resources and energy so we should direct it to where there's the most suffering and where we have the opportunity to do the most good. When you look at factory farming and the number of farmed animals, I mean, the statistics really are staggering. I mean, yeah. 9 billion in the U.S. alone, and that doesn't include fish, right? right. Yeah. So it could be, you know, because they do that by weight and not right. by individual. And right. globally, you had estimated somewhere between 50 to 100 billion land animals alone. Right. It's insane, right? It's insane. So. What, one of the things I thought was really interesting about your book is you kind of give this primer, this history of how of how factory farming evolved. Like nobody is super enthusiastic about factory farming, but this right. is the world in which we live, and this right. is how we've you know created a way to feed the planet. Yeah. But I think it would be instructive to kind of take a step back and look at how we got here as a yeah. way of contextualizing how perhaps we can solve this problem and create better ways. That flies back. The fly is back <laughs> with a vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think like a lot of things throughout history, um, our ancestors were trying to do the best that they could with what they had under the, the current um, circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, or under the, the circumstances that they were, were living in. So I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, condemn those that came before me. I think they, they were doing what they thought was necessary, but certainly in this day and age with a, a global population racing towards almost 10 billion by 2050 and the the threats of climate change and and all of the knowledge that we have it's clear that the old way of doing things just isn't going to be sustainable for us not to mention it's just completely cruel and inhumane to the animals that are are, are victims of it but you know we people didn't always eat this much meat <laughs> Right. You know, this is a relatively new phenomenon um, throughout human history. And, you know, factory farming as we know it is something that my my great grandfather was in the middle of when he was he, he, he raised pigs the way that a lot of people still think pigs are raised out, you know, out in the field. And I, I talk about it in my book how it was it was in that time in the the early you know 1900s 
when these factory um, confinement systems started to come about in the U.S., these things like gestation crates and like farrowing crates. And my my great grandfather said, I'm not going to use them because they're too hard on the sows. But, you know, beginning of, of World War One, there was a, a push to need to produce a lot of um, food and a lot of protein. And mm-hmm. and there was this push to produce a lot of chicken, especially um, specifically. And 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 with that, at the same time, you know, around the, the 40s or so, we, we started seeing places like McDonald's and KFC, you know, rise. And so you can look at a chart of, of meat consumption in the United States and you can see you know, just this incredible spike in meat consumption and the the slaughter of, of chickens, uh, mostly uh, chickens, you know, starting back in the 60s or 70s or so. It was just this dramatic incline. So, um, you know, it, it was taking these, these factory models and taking animals from the outdoors, putting them inside, giving animals vitamin D and things so that they didn't need as much sunlight, um, manipulating their diet, manipulating their like um, lighting cycles. And then, of course, we had penicillin and antibiotics, so we were able to keep animals in conditions that otherwise they wouldn't naturally live in because they're they're too filthy and it's too stressful and now we you know start feeding animals these routine um you know uh non-therapeutic antibiotics and of course we all know the problems with that now as well with you know super bugs and what some say at least 70 percent of antibiotics now being fed directly to farm animals so it's just a total mess it's a it's a system that's out of control and it's not sustainable on every measurable level that we look at. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I, and part of writing the, the book was a lot of reflection about the history of how we got here. Um, but I, I think that we have an opportunity to be really intentional about what the future of food looks like. And I, I talk about that in the book too. Right. And we're going to get to that. Yes. The, the, the pioneering <laughs> clean meat movement, yeah. which is super fascinating. Yeah. And as you probably know, I had Bruce Friedrich on oh, good. Uh, to talk about that in the past. So yeah. And I love talking about that stuff. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. But in, in the context of, of, of factory farming, give us a lay of the land of what we're currently kind of looking at in terms of how the typical cow and chicken are treated. Yeah. So there are really two main breeds of chickens that are used. And one is the egg-laying chicken, the white leghorn. And they have been bred to be rather small birds who produce a lot of eggs. So the, the, the modern chicken that's used for, for food production or eggs originate from jungle fowl from Southeast Asia. And in nature, these birds you know, would lay about two clutches of eggs a year, so about two dozen eggs the entire year. They'd spend much of their time you know, running around, building nests, exploring, looking for insects, um, had a really rich, rich life, would live to be over 10 years old. We domesticated these birds and started manipulating their genetics. So now for the egg-laying breeds, they lay over 200 eggs every year. Mm. And this takes a big toll on the birds' bodies because these eggs take up so much calcium for the shell and what's in them. So a lot of these birds suffer from osteoporosis and a lot of them suffer from broken bones by the time they're pulled out of their cages and are slaughtered. Right, and their legs can't really sustain the weight, right? So they can't even really walk. So that's the broiler chickens, okay. the meat type birds. And these are birds that have been bred through genetic uh, selection to be really big because the, the characteristic that they're being bred for is breast meat or thigh meat, because that's what the companies want. And in order for that to happen, there are of course unintended consequences, which are the, the birds can't walk naturally. Um, studies show that about 90% of them um, are essentially lying down in the last few days of their lives because it's just so incredibly painful for them to walk. They have joint pain and they suffer from um, heart problems, lung problems. Similar things that you would see with really obese children, the same sort of joint pains and everything you're mm -hmm. seeing with these birds because they are they are babies. And if you listen to them, they're they're essentially chirping as if they're they're babies because they are. They're only 45 days old when they're slaughtered. Right. Um, the egg laying birds, the males. Uh, so, so for for broiler chickens, both male and female birds are are bred and they're kept in these huge windowless sheds um, packed in there by the literally tens of thousands living in their own excrement. They suffer from sores on their, their legs, on their, their, their breasts, blisters. Um, they really don't have access to natural light. So they're, um, and they do that intentionally so that the birds will grow faster. Um, so they, they don't even have a natural um, activity schedule. They grow they faster without the light? 
because they don't want them moving around as much because you know when, when there's any, any energy that's right that's right they wow. just want them to to eat grow and go to slaughter mm-hmm. that is that is the that is the business model for these broiler um operations they're they're then um taken to the slaughterhouse and are killed in the way that that we discussed earlier now on the the egg laying side it's only the females that are used the males because they're not this breed that grows really large and they don't produce eggs they're useless so they are killed right away and i I tell the story in the book about an investigation at highline hatchery which is one of the largest hatcheries in the entire world they hatch hundreds of thousands of birds every single week and we documented what happens to all of these males and what happens is there are these people called sexers and they there are these conveyor belts with the chicks on them and it gets to this area where there are people that sit around and their job all day is to grab chicks by their wings look and see if they're male or female and then toss them in one of two directions one is where the females go and the other is a chute and they go down this chute and then the conveyor belt takes them into this room that most people can't get into and what's in that room is a huge macerator where the conveyor belt of the birds are dropped into and then they're ground up alive so the males are just ground up right away they're ground up alive yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's how that's how they're killed and it's just all day there's just chicks being dumped into this macerator and and in some ways they're the lucky ones because the fate is so horrible for for the females so if they go if they're female and they go down the other chute, they um, will have their beaks burned off, uh, either with a hot blade or with a laser. And then they'll be trucked off to a facility where they'll be put in these tiny cages that are stacked on top of each other. They'll never feel the grass under their feet. They'll never see sunlight. They'll never breathe fresh air. Mm-hmm. And they live in these cages for usually about two years. And then their egg production starts to decline and they're considered worn out. and they're also killed sometimes they're thrown into gas carts right there on the farm they're gassed with co2 um sometimes they're sent and slaughtered for low-grade products like um, chicken soup or something and what happens to the masticated chickens and the feces and the waste like how is that managed well it's similar to all factory farms Uh, the and and pig farms and dairy farms are, are huge you know uh, literal polluters in the sense that the the waste of these animals is not regulated in the same way that human waste is and y- you know you you have a situation where for example with cows and pigs they produce you know more waste one animal than perhaps a, a, you know multiple humans would be producing and they'll go into these huge uh, essentially manure lagoons um, and they it will sit there collecting you know bacteria. It's a huge environmental hazard. They try to spray some of it on nearby uh, fields. Right. There was that scene in What the Health. Where That's you right. See that happening. That's right. And this happens all the, all over the place. They're spraying. They're literally spraying them on fields like it looks like it's fertilizer yeah. or they're irrigating crops, but it's just fecal matter and yeah. waste. Yeah. And, and a lot of these farms are in you know, uh, communities of, of color, you know, underprivileged communities. So there's like, there are so many issues that, that are really, um, embodied in what's happening here. It becomes a socioeconomic problem. Absolutely. So, and then, 
and then uh, you know it'll rain and or unused waste will get into the nearby creeks and streams and groundwater and i talk in the book about um an egg farm in ohio and at the time ohio was the largest egg producing state in the entire country now it's still you know in the top the, the the top bracket but there was the largest egg farm there called buckeye egg farm and it was run by this man named anton pullman who was actually banned from owning chickens in germany because of cruelty to animals but ohio and the u.s said hey come on over right we want you to build your operation here so he, and sorry to interrupt you, but you go through kind of a laundry list of the things that he did in Germany, and it's just, it's unbelievable, right? That yeah. He could just pack up and come over here <laughs> yeah. and set up shop after what he had what he had done there. Yeah, and then he did the exact same thing mm -hmm. in the United States. So it was environmental violations, fly infestations of local schools and communities and people's um, property values plummeting because nobody nobody wants to buy a house surrounded by 10 million chickens and manure and flies and and everything from child labor issues and, and violations um at, at the farm it's just um th i mean these are these are dark sad places um in, in every way that you can imagine so so that's that's sort of um the the aerial view of what life is like for for hens mm -hmm. um you mentioned uh, what life is like for 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 cows. You know, the the worst treatment is of in the dairy industry, actually. Um, and a lot of people don't really think about animal cruelty in the egg industry or in the dairy industry mm -hmm. because you think, well, you know, an animal doesn't directly need to die for that. So it must be okay as long as they're living good lives. But, the the truth is that oftentimes it's just prolonged cruelty for these animals and they are slaughtered um there's not um you know a big sanctuary where where millions and millions of animals go to live the rest of their <laughs> right. lives there's <laughs> there's there's no happy pasture for these animals uh -huh. um so in the dairy industry you have again a situation that's based off of the reproductive manipulation of animals where the males also aren't useful so they're also considered useless byproducts and that's where the veal industry comes from dairy cows used for dairy are just like any other mammal you know what makes us mammals well a number of things but one is that we uh, feed our young through milk um, and cows are the same they they only produce milk to feed their babies not you know, because for the rest a, of, of a dairy, be right. <laughs> not because of a dairy company wants to, you know, make profits off of them. So they have to be artificially impregnated, then give birth. Those babies, obviously, if they were drinking the milk, then there wouldn't be any milk to be sold to people. So the babies are literally dragged away um, within a few hours of being born. Right. There's all those videos that are heart wrenching yeah. of, of the calves being separated from the mother and the mother whelping. And yeah. you know, it's, it's awful to watch. It is awful to watch. And, and that is, that plays itself out countless times a day in the dairy industry. Those videos aren't, you know, some exceptional thing that's happened. Somebody just, you know, filmed it, but that is, that is the emotional heartbreak that these animals suffer every single time that their babies are taken from them in the dairy industry. And, you know, I think any, any mother 
could relate to what that must be like on some level. Um, and I, I tell a story in the book about um, the sort of Sophie's choice um, situation at a, a very small, uh, actually family farm in New York where there was this cow who had given birth um, out in pasture and she had she had been used by the dairy farm for for a number of years now so she knew what happened when she gave birth she knew that her baby was going to be taken away from her um, and they took they took the baby away but she kept coming back um, from the field to be milked without much milk to give mm-hmm. um, or to be taken really and they didn't understand what was wrong because she seemed like she was in good health one day they followed her out into the field and and realized that she in fact had given birth to twins and that there was another calf that was out in the field that she was protecting because she knew that they would take one of her calves away she literally like hid her baby yeah yeah and she made this heartbreaking choice of giving up one of them to save the other because she knew from past experiences what was going to happen right which sheds a light on the interior lives and the intelligence of these animals oh absolutely and they they remember (laughs) they think about the past they think about the future they plan um you know uh jane goodall she she once said that we have to understand that we're not the only beings on this planet with personalities and minds and it's basic but it's true Mm -hmm. um so, so, so that's that is that is the beginning for these these animals um, in the dairy industry. The the females will then be um, kept in in factory conditions, where some of them will be chained by their necks. Others will just be conf- confined indoors. About three, four times a day, they'll be taken um, into a milking parlor area and hooked up with electrical um, sucking devices. Now. A physical abuse to these animals is really extreme in, inside of these environments because you'll have people working in, inside of these operations that are tasked with moving hundreds, thousands of animals a day in a very short period of time in really brutal conditions. And so people become desensitized to what's taking place there. And violence quickly follows. They'll take out their frustration and their anger on the animals in front of them. And we've documented dairy farms, workers using uh, pitchforks to stab cows, breaking their tails, using crowbars to beat them over the head. Just really the most heartbreaking um, type of abuse that you could imagine. It's interesting, that phenomenon. And it makes you wonder, you know, did, did these employees come in with that disposition or did the experience of working there and you know having to kind of repress you know their their own compassionate feelings lead to that kind of behavior i you know this is something that that i really struggled with and i feel like i have a much deeper understanding of it because mercy for animals has done over 60 undercover investigations and I think that there's a small, small number of individuals that work at factory farms that are sort of sadistic and enjoy abusing animals and and use their place of power there um, to fulfill this really sort of 
sick desire to to torture animals we see that every once in a while but the norm is that you have a, a an under underprivileged vulnerable community of people mostly undocumented immigrants who take these jobs in factory farms and slaughterhouses very few people grow up wanting to work at a slaughterhouse or in a factory farm that's not what people aspire to so you, you know this is this is the work that most americans will not take so we have people that take these jobs which are some of the most dangerous in the entire country slaughterhouses one of the most dangerous jobs that you can get um high rates of amputation carpal tunnel syndrome um you know back injuries everything physically dangerous but then you also have an emotionally traumatizing job. I mean, you can imagine it is someone's job for eight hours a day to sit with a knife and slit the throat of chickens who miss the automated blade. Somebody sits there with an iPad on, an iPod, you know, listening to music, slitting the throats of animals. Right, and having to sublimate that somehow, yeah. day in and day out. Like, there's just no way that that is not taking a huge emotional toll exactly. on, a, on a human being. Exactly. And so we see, and, and, and there's been studies done on this as well, but our investigators see all the time, really high rates of alcoholism and drug abuse, especially uh, methamphetamines, uh, inside of these operations. So you have people, one, really physically demanding work. And then two, as you said, there's emotional trauma that they're suffering. And I talk in the book about um, perpetration-induced traumatic stress, which is a form of PTSD where you take people who are, are put in positions of, of jobs to carry out acts of violence that they normally wouldn't do in good consciousness. And that's exactly what the jobs are at slaughterhouses. You have people who come in, take these jobs out of desperation, are filled with compassion, care about animals, but within a day or a few days, imagine what a, what a month or a year would do. Um, you know, these these people have to numb themselves, have to disconnect, have to not care about what they're doing and what's taking place in front of them. And there was there's a study that looked at the Sinclair effect, um, this theory that Upton Sinclair put forward uh, 100 years ago when he noticed that there were rates of violent crime much higher around slaughterhouses than in, in other areas. And the, the, the research shows that that is in fact a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And you have higher rates of violent crime with homicides in some cases being carried out in the same way that animals are, are killed, that people's throats being slit in that manner um, in communities where there are slaughterhouses. So animals are definitely the, the biggest victim in terms of, of number and and, 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 and and duration of suffering, but they're not the only victims of mm -hmm. these these industries and systems as well. And to me, it's, it's, a, it's a simple question. Do slaughterhouses have a place in a civilized, moral, ethical, enlightened, conscious society? To me, the answer is no. Right. Uh, yeah, and Upton Sinclair, what was it, 1904, when his yeah. book came out? 1906, yeah. 1906. Yep. And that book had a huge impact. You it know, did. It's still taught in schools, and it had, uh, you know, it, it had a pronounced impact on the administration and yes. legislation at the time. It was kind of a sensation, right? It was. And yet, the long-term impact of that was unheeded, right? Because here we are today, 
and yeah. people like yourself are putting out books on the same subject and advocating in the way that you do. And yet it seems, although culture is shifting and we're yeah. in a new era and that's very exciting and I yeah. have a lot of optimism around Absolutely. that. Um, you know, there's still a lot that needs to be heard that is not, like it's not landing, right? Yeah. And when we talk about, you know, the oversight and the regulation, and we'll get a little bit more into, you know, what that regulatory landscape looks like, um, it doesn't seem like anything is really being handled properly. Right. Where where is the oversight? Where is you know, where is the USDA in all of this? And why is there not more hands on governance in terms of policing what is okay and what isn't, at least in the construct of accepting that this right. is how we're feeding the planet at yeah. the current moment? Well, it comes down to money and power and the agriculture industry and most specifically the meat industry, the dairy industry are really powerful lobbies and they don't want oversight and they don't want regulation. They want to, and we're seeing that more now than ever. And they want to be able to, to cram more animals in smaller cages. They want to run production speeds faster than ever. In fact, they're trying to increase the speed of, of poultry slaughterhouses now. And they're already moving at a rate of, you know, every second, essentially hanging a bird and they're trying to double the line speed. So the industry, if, if there is no oversight or there is no um, public scrutiny, would continue to go down this path um, that obviously is bad for, for animals, but it's also bad for, for consumers as, as well. And, you know, we're seeing more and more of these, these ag gag type uh, laws that are being proposed, which which really seek to stop the type of work that Upton Sinclair did, which led to the first two federal laws regulating slaughterhouses in our country. And, you know, these ag-gag laws, which, which essentially see, uh, are intended to criminalize whistleblowing, they, they want to make it illegal to take a photograph or a video inside of a factory farm. Mm -hmm. They uh, are intended to intimidate people from stepping forward and uh, really pulling back the curtain and showing people what where their food comes from. And you know, you see the meat industry and the dairy industry step forward and put their entire weight behind bills like this and then fight tooth and nail against regulations that would um, even require animals be able to turn around in their cages. So it's really clear, you know, where the industry's focus is. But these agag laws are, are dangerous to democracy as well. It's amazing to me that they withstand constitutional scrutiny. Like, I don't understand, like, I, I feel as a lawyer, like, I feel like I need to educate myself a little bit more about this world because it just does not seem like it has a place in an open democracy to I agree. erect these laws that are preventing consumers from understanding, you know, where their food is coming from. Is there anything more fundamentally, you know, needed from exactly. a consumer than to have an educated understanding of the mechanics behind, you know, what they're getting at the supermarket? Right. You know, the the Washington Post um, tagline right now is democracy dies in darkness. And that's exactly what the meat industry is trying to do is keep people in the dark. And 
so, so, so most of these ag gag laws started popping up around 2011. Um, mm-hmm. About half of the states considered them. Most of them were defeated. But big ag states like Iowa, who are bowing to the interest of the agriculture industry, not doing what consumers really want, and consumers in Iowa didn't want um, an ag gag law, passed these bills. And now a number of them have been challenged in federal court as being unconstitutional, and a number of them have been overturned. And the judges have said, yes, this is a violation of freedom of speech, freedom of press, and in their ruling specifically compare Mercy for Animals investigators to Upton Sinclair. And they do say exactly what you said, you know, what is more uh, important than a right to know about where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. So there, there definitely is a, is, is a challenge, but to me it says a lot about this industry that instead of seeing the, the issues that animals face and the fact that consumers oppose what they're doing, which is true, I mean, you look at national polls and over 90% of, of Americans say, yes, animals, including those raised and killed for food, should not be tortured. But then you look at what's actually happening and these animals are being tortured. So the industry has sort of two paths to go down. One is they start to address what what the animals are enduring, or the other is they just try to stop the discussion. Mm-hmm. And they want to, to create to create a one-sided discussion where only they can put forward, you know, these sort of staged white glove tour images of what their facilities look like. And they want to they want to crowd out the images that our investigators gather when the industry doesn't think that they're being watched. Right. It would be like if you went to North Korea yeah. and you were guided around and, That's right. and shown the whitewashed version of yeah. what it's like to be there right. versus the reality of what, it, what it's really like. Exactly. But you said something interesting a minute ago that I didn't want to gloss over, which was that you're seeing more of these laws come online. Like, So my understanding was that we're kind of sounding the death knell for the ag-gag law yeah. era, but are you saying that's not the case? Well, t- 2011 is when a lot of them came up. Um, uh, There's not more this year than there had been before. And I think that the industry sort of walked away um, with a lot of black eyes and and sort of beaten up in the press because what AgGag did is it really attracted a lot of national media coverage to what was happening Mm -hmm. in our food supply and, you know, what what are these industries so desperate to hide? Most businesses are excited for the media and for customers to come and see what mm-hmm. they do, um, but it's it's the opposite um, in in the meat industry. And just so we're clear, the way the law deals with somebody who violates one of these ag gag laws is to treat that perpetrator as a domestic terrorist. Yeah, and in some situations, the penalty for just snapping a photograph while someone beats a pig, for example, carries a harsher penalty than beating the animal does. Hmm. Right, so they go they go after the documentarian yeah. and not shoot the, the messenger, not the, not the abuse that's actually been perpetrated. And for you, I mean, this goes back your first sort of undercover investigation was like two thousand one, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the so I was seventeen when we started, which gave me a, a bit of some legal cover because I was still a minor, <laughs> but. Um, you know, now nowadays we have people that get hired at these facilities. They work alongside everyone. They they have high tech camera equipment that's designed by the same people that make equipment for the FBI and CIA. But in the early days, um, we used a tactic known as open rescue, 
which started in Australia about 30 years ago. And it's a combination of investigations, animal rescue, and civil disobedience all wrapped up into one. So we would send certified letters to egg farms in the state and we'd say, we're concerned about what's happening with the animals there. We want a tour. Will you give us a, a tour? We never received any responses. So we would then move move forward and we would go in at night, you know, 2 a.m., dressed in black with splunking lights on, and we would essentially go through these unlocked doors. We weren't there to damage property. We were there to document and to help animals. So we would go in through the manure pits of these huge factory farms. Sometimes these manure pits are seven, eight feet high. And then we would climb through um, broken cage wire and, and get to the second floor because uh, egg farms are two floors high. The, the manure's on the ground floor and then the second floor is where the birds are kept. And we would spend hours at a time in there documenting with handheld cameras, birds that were impaled by a cage wire, birds that were thrown away into trash cans while they were still alive, birds with broken bones. And um, we would take some of them with us to go to veterinarians to be treated and then to animal sanctuaries. So by doing this work, we were risking literally decades in prison. Um, one one lawyer uh, told us it was 30 years that we were facing right. for doing this work. I, I would mean, still first, be in prison right now. <laughs> the first one, after you sorted out the camera equipment, after right. a couple sort of naive attempts, <laughs> you, you do this exploration, you do all this documentation, and you're still 17, right? You call yep. this press conference, and yep. you get the, all this media attention, and you unveil these videos and the documentation, yep. and it causes quite a stir. I mean, you're 17, and you're, I mean, that is like ballsy, man. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that takes like a lot of, cur I mean, I think about what I was doing when I was 17, you know, basically, you know, creating, um, creating a media event around this cause that, is not just important to you, but something that you know all consumers should be aware of. Yeah, and and actually catalyzing the appropriate effect. And what I thought was interesting about that 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 story was that the um, so the chicken farm is is coming after you, right? They're mm -hmm. going to sue you, and and you're going to be the victim in all of this. But then they realized the media shitstorm that, that would ensue <laughs> right. from something like yeah. that. You know, to be in open court would just give you an even broader platform to speak more, you know, vociferously about what was actually going on. And then the whole thing just goes away. Yeah. And we did four of these open rescues. So we kept sort of pushing the envelope as, as years went on. We went them through to, uh, from 2001 to 2004. And, uh, we knew that we were taking legal risk. Um, it wasn't our preference to go to jail because we knew we could help more animals outside of jail than we could um, behind bars. But we were willing to to take that risk because people didn't know what was happening. Again, this was really before the rise of social media. So to get people to even see a few seconds of what an inside of a factory farm looked like, we would need to sort of take some some pretty um, you know drastic measures to get the media, national or local mm -hmm. media, to pay attention just long enough right. to to put these images on the local news. So you got to crack the code on marketing, also, right? <laughs> yeah, in a, in a pre-social network era, <laughs> right? Interesting. I'm super proud to announce. 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Let's talk a little bit about labels. I mm-hmm. mean, you mentioned earlier um, there is growing consumer concern and compassion around these ideas. Right. And when, you know, the average human being or consumer actually gets a glimpse at what is actually going on, they don't like it. Like we're nobody, you know, we're inherently compassionate. Like we, yeah. nobody wants this to be happening to the animals. We just right. sort of accept it. And I think the term you use in your book is, you know, there's a, there's a, or I, I read an interview somewhere where, you were asked, you know, why do we allow this to continue? And there's there's a level of willful ignorance, which totally. is a phrase you use, and I think that's that's right. You know, yeah. I think there there is. It's not that we want it to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's just that we're either uneducated or because we're so disassociated from the process of where our food comes from that it's easy to be willfully ignorant to choose not to watch those videos like you know oh don't show me that or like scroll quickly through your facebook feed when you know nathan's latest video comes up you know <laughs> i'm following him cuz i want to know but like i don't really want to know you know what i mean like that kind of thing right um and so industry is aware of this and we live in a capitalist society and as consumer habits begin to shift and issues like wellness and um, you know humane, the humane treatment of animals become right. more of a cultural priority, mm-hmm. we have kind of stepped into that as a society to deal with it, not necessarily by redressing the cause and getting to the root of the matter, but mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. kind of placating people with these labels, whether it's cage-free or grass-fed, and, and now there's so many of them. Right. Like some of them more worthy than others, but it's mm-hmm. almost so confusing now that, because there's like 10 labels on every food product, like what does any of this mean? Right. Is this real? Um, you know, beyond just the, the picture of the pasture on the, on, the, on the thing of eggs that makes you feel good without right. any meaning whatsoever. So walk us through like what these labels are, the main ones, what they actually mean, the reality versus like the proposition. Yeah. So there's a lot of what I call humane washing that's that's happening. You have a lot of people who, as you just said, are becoming more aware of what's happening. They know that factory farming is bad, that animals suffer. They don't want to support it. Now, we believe that at Mercy for Animals, the best thing is to move towards a plant-based diet. It's really the, the compassionate choice that we can make. So we don't endorse any of these animal products because there is always inherent cruelty that goes with it. Whenever you're gonna make an animal a commodity and view them as a production unit, their welfare is always going to be secondary or further down the line to the the bottom line. and as you said, the, the labels really do vary dramatically. You have some that are essentially rubber stamping what the industry is already doing. Mm-hmm. So those are labels like United Egg Producer Certified. If you see those, if you see that label on an egg carton, 
that means that those eggs are from a factory farm and the birds are kept in cages and they can't spread their wings. Right, it just means there's an egg in this box. That's right. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and the primary trade association for the egg industry acknowledges that there's an egg in that box. Uh-huh. Um, and I talk a little bit in the book about how the initial label uh, was called the animal care certified label that was also put on egg cartons with hens that were kept in these battery cages. But MFA and other organizations said, this is consumer fraud. You need to change this. And the Better Business Bureau got involved in the Federal Trade Commission, and they changed it to now United Egg Producer Certified. Then you have labels like American Humane Certified, which is from the American Humane Association, which is also completely meaningless. Um, This is the same organization that's behind the no animals harmed and making of this film um, labeling Mm -hmm. that you see on films, which has come under scrutiny because they will put that label on films where animals have died or been killed or nearly drowned, abused, just terrible things. So well, so what's going on over there? What is the purpose of that organization then? Well, it's, it is essentially, it, it has become almost a front group for animal use industries. They, the American Humane Association finds themselves on the opposite end of animal welfare issues than pretty much every other animal organization. And Bull Hooks is an example of that. They actually came out in support of these sharp metal weapons that are used to beat elephants in circuses. No other animal protection organization would do that because it's not in the best interest of, of, of elephants. So you have an organization that has a really wonderful sounding name that has essentially been co-opted to just um, fall in line with what animal use industries are doing. So it's incredibly misleading. Mm-hmm. They're now- um, It's almost like a lobbying group. Or yeah. Like, a super, like these super PACs where they have these names that That's sound right. great and you have no <laughs> right. idea what they're actually behind. Exactly, exactly. And this uh, American Humane Certified label is now appearing on Butterball Turkey, Foster Farm Chicken, uh, and we, I talk in the book about an investigation that we did at Foster Farm um, Chicken Operations here in California that actually led to criminal animal cruelty convictions at one of these American Humane Certified facilities. So th- you have that on one end, and then on the other end, you have things like the Whole Food um, Program, where there's a tier, you know, five tier, pr- um, and you can actually see what the different. Um, labels mean you know one through five and then in the middle you have cage free which you know is arguably better than keeping hens in battery cages but it's a far cry from what most people think right like that what is. what is cage free so cage free means that the birds are not kept in these individual cages that we talked about earlier but they're essentially caged by the bodies of other animals they're they're kept in these same oftentimes windowless sheds like broiler chickens or meat or meat type birds by the tens of thousands and they don't have access to the outdoors and there are there are serious problems associated with that you have um cannibalism you know birds can only establish a pecking order with up to about a hundred other birds that's 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 how many birds they can recognize they can determine you know who's in charge what the social hierarchy is supposed to be that gets much larger than that it's chaos and there's there's no social order and the birds start to to cannibalize and attack each other so you have a lot of um issues with that with and and then of course you have the male chicks that are still killed and the birds are Mm -hmm. still killed when their production declines there's no you know cage-free sanctuaries either um and then you have free range which 
is essentially what I just described, that the birds should have access to the outdoors. Now, the problem is, is that there's not very clear definitions of what, what that, that means. means. Right. So the birds might have a small amount of access to the outdoors for a large number of birds. And then you have pasture-based and, 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 and sort of a, a varying um, degree of, of freedom that the birds are supposed to receive, but there's not there's not very strict regulation of what the terms are or who's overseeing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as, as, as you can see, there's, there are a lot of labels that are aimed at making people feel good about what they're buying, but oftentimes they're, it's not really clear what they mean and, and what they mean is much less than what people expect. Right. I think it's super instructive what you had to say about the, American Humane Association. I mean, yeah. just seeing that word humane oh, on, yeah. on a label, on a, on a box or packaging, any, you know, the, the average consumer would just be like, oh, it's humane, it's, you know, it's humane, I'm good. You know, it's great. because it's yeah. about, it's about um, guilt alleviation, right? As yeah. much as anything else. Like, as yeah. long as I see that, then I have no internal conflict. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I know people who say, oh yeah, you know, I only, I only eat, um, you know, free range animals that are free ranged and and the truth is that it's not true <laughs> because it's it's very difficult to you know eat on the go and eat in all these places and and actually know where any of your food is coming from like it's under such sort of limited uh set of circumstances where you actually would be able to know where your food is coming from and that's why i say even if you don't have a problem eating animals um, and, and, and you're okay with eating animals if, they, if they're if they raised in a, under certain conditions. The truth is that it's just not as practical to live in line with those values as it is to eat plant-based. It's always, you know, it's much easier to eat plant-based food knowing that you're not supporting animal cruelty than pretending that you're only gonna, you know, eat meat raised under, of animals raised under certain circumstances because you just, it's just not available to people. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, psychological and philosophical discussion and mm -hmm. argument to have because someone like Gary Francione mm -hmm. would say that this, you know, the sort of grass-fed movement and this this explosion of of at least the idea, if not the reality, of humanely raised meat yeah. um, is actually harming the movement because it is going to the heart of that guilt alleviation. It makes people less likely to ultimately abandon meat or go plant-based because they feel better about the choices that they're making. Yeah. I don't believe that that's the situation that we're in for, for a number of, of reasons. One is I think we have to look at the ethics that are at hand and say, the animals that are unfortunate enough to be raised into the food system because like it or not there are people that are eating meat most people are eating meat right now and most people that eat meat aren't sitting down and thinking about the lives that these animals lived <laughs> they're going to the drive-thru they're getting meat you know this is not an Came ethical from the, the patty the patty <laughs> the hamburger patty tree <laughs> that's right I, unfortunately it's just not on most people's um radar that this isn't like at the front of the of their mind so the animals that are being raised and killed in these conditions i believe it is our moral and ethical responsibility to ensure that they are not tortured to do what we can to alleviate the worst forms of abuse that they are subjected to and anything short of that I think is is in line with speciesist views to say no we shouldn't advocate for these animals to to live better lives to me is to to say let them suffer 
and let them suffer in the worst way possible. And, fo and following that sort of argument, you could say, well, if it's just about argument sakes and, and people not feeling good about eating meat, then treat animals worse. Make sure that all of them are skinned alive. Then you can tell people that every animal is skinned alive and isn't that terrible. Then right. it will wait on their shoulders. But nobody would say that, hopefully, yeah. because that's so absurd. Um, and if you look at, at, at countries where there's a, a higher rate of vegetarianism, especially like in, in, in Western societies, these are also the places where there are higher animal welfare standards and higher laws protecting animals from abuse. So I think when we have laws and policies that move the ball forward for how farmed animals are treated, it, it says these animals matter. We can't just treat them any old way. Like we have to acknowledge that they have feelings. And even if you're gonna use them, they, they can't be treated in the worst way possible. And I think that that is a step forward in ethical evolution in our relationship with animals. It's not, it's not the end game. It's not uh, a place where we're having a completely uh, respectful relationship with animals by any means. But I think that it does move the needle, needle forward. But I think the movement, and certainly Mercy for Animals does this, needs to be clear about what's actually happening, mm -hmm. you know? And when there there is a move for, uh, of getting animals out of cages, we say, this is progress, but this is not good enough. This isn't the end game. This doesn't mean that that cage free is cruelty free, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that there are some some organizations that do rubber stamp and endorse these animal products. Mercy for Animals is not one of them. We never have been, we never will be because um, we don't need to be eating animals. And, and because of that, it will always be unnecessary suffering and unnecessary violence that these animals are being subjected to for our food. Where are the battle lines currently being drawn? Like, where is the where is the war? Where does it sit right now? Like, where what needs to be addressed first, and yeah. where are the resources and the energy and the focus being directed? In terms of of animal welfare campaigns, or yeah. just the movement overall? So, or just in, in kind of canvassing the legislative regulatory landscape of what is actually happening right now. So, a lot of the the change that we're seeing in terms of of how animals are, are treated on farms is happening on the corporate level, and you have companies like Walmart that sell a quarter of the groceries in this country. They have more power to change the fate of animals than most states do. Um, and you have McDonald's, you know, buying uh, billions of eggs every year, et cetera. So we've been able to help drive change through corporate policies. Um, we've gotten over 200 companies to change their policies to the tune of over 1.2 billion animals that will be affected by those policies mm -hmm. every year. It started out with gestation crates, getting pigs out of gestation crates, then it moved to battery cages and getting hens out of battery cages. And now the the primary focus for us is the treatment of broiler chickens. So again, they are they are like the 99% of the 99%. And right, like 300 a second or yeah, something like that yeah, are being killed. Right, it's astronomical. So right now we're focused on addressing the slaughter of, of, of these birds because they're killed in a way that would be prohibited if we even killed cows or pigs in that way. So um, trying to get it so that these, these birds are not 
dumped out of shack uh, crates while they're alive, snapped into shackles while they're still alive, using inert gases to put the birds to sleep, so they're never handled and they never have to endure um, that that cruelty. Changing the genetics of the birds so that they grow slower and not so so large, giving them access to natural light so that they can have that um, you know semblance of a, of a day and the natural energy and, and the natural um, activities that come along with that, giving them environmental enrichment. You know, these are animals with, with minds and curiosities and they should have um, things to do with their, their days. So those are, those are some of the, the things that are, are being pushed forward for, for, um, for chickens. Mm -hmm. The next, the next uh, real battle is for, for fish. Um, you know, they are, raised in much the same way um, on factory farms now. In some of these fish, it takes them a number of years to reach market weight, what's considered market weight. So the the duration of their suffering is very long. And you know they're they're kept in these concrete tanks crowded together. You've got poor water quality. You've got um, mites, uh, essentially parasite infestations that the the fish suffer from. Um, they suffer from blindness. Then you have handling um, the cruelty and the way in which they're slaughtered. So we're starting to lay the foundation for doing work for fish probably in the next year or so. On the legislative front. I think it's pretty exciting what's happening actually. In Massachusetts last year, voters overwhelmingly passed an initiative that would prohibit hens from being kept in cages, pigs in gestation crates, calves in veal crates. But what was most meaningful was that it also prohibited the sale of products from animals kept in these uh, restrictive mm. cages. Now that initiative is coming to California and uh, animal advocates have started gathering half a million signatures to place it on the ballot for next year, which is essentially builds off of Prop 2, which passed in 2008 with over 63% of the vote. And it also prohibits products from being sold in the state of California mm -hmm. from animals kept in these tiny enclosures. So it should have a you know ripple effect. Right. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What do you think are the the big obstacles that you face in terms of trying to get people to understand where you're coming from? I mean, mm. you know, we still have a long ways to go. Like I said earlier, a lot of progress has been made. Yeah. And you kind of break it down generally, generationally in yeah. your book. Like, yeah. The baby boomers, one percent of them mm -hmm. were vegan or vegetarian. Gen X, four percent. Millennials, twelve percent. So yeah. there's a trend here, a right? huge trend, <laughs> a but huge trend. Still, you know, most people not on board. Yeah, they, and they say that a tipping point is ten percent. So if you look at millennials, you know, it's clear that we're over the tipping point. And I'm, I am optimistic at the end of the day. And I say with the work that I do, I see the darkest side of humanity with how people can be cruel, but in the same day, I see the brightest side of humanity. I see the kindness, creativity, ingenuity, um, you know, and, and courage that people can have to make the world better for themselves and for, for animals and for our environment. So I believe that that innovation will help save us um, from, from, from these, these challenges. And I talk in the book about how the meat industry is ripe for disruption you know it is it's just outdated it's inefficient to funnel so many grains through an animal most of it being used just to keep the animal alive and energy and then part of it being defecated out to get a small return essentially so 
you know, if you look at the transportation sector, you look at what got horses off of the the busy streets pulling these you know heavy um carriages and enduring the blistering heat and the the freezing temperatures yes there was ethical concern but it was henry ford and the model t that made riding horses appear to be just so outdated and inefficient and silly and the same thing, you know, happened in getting and driving an end to much of the whaling um, that was happening. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, kerosene and other oils, and you know, we look at um, the changes in how we communicate and 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 not sending so much paper mail because we can get you know a million times more information on our phone. So there's and, and you see what's happening in the energy space moving, you know, towards clean energy and solar and all of those. So the same is happening in the protein space and I know you you talked about I'm um, speaking with Bruce from the Good Food Institute. I talk in the book about co-founding the Good Food Institute because I do believe that innovation in the protein space uh, has the potential to just dramatically change the game. Some of that in plant-based um, proteins, but also in clean meat. You know, mm-hmm. taking a harmless biopsy from an animal, getting a stem cell, growing it in a, so- a suitable medium in a bioreactor or brewery, um, and creating real meat without outside of the animals. And I consider this, um, as others do, the second domestication. The first, you know, 10,000 years ago, the Neolithic period, when we started domesticating um, animals and and plants that essentially led to agriculture, that led to society as we know it today in many ways. The second domestication being cells and us, and I think it being a reflection of our ethical growth and our intellectual growth and our understanding of science mm-hmm. so that we can um you know get all the benefit without the harm and to me that's really exciting it's crazy times <laughs> i mean it's literally science fiction yeah. you know it's amazing what is happening you know specifically with uma valetti and his yes. team at memphis meets and yep. what they're innovating and and the momentum that they have right now and yeah. certainly there will be i mean this is coming like this yeah. is this is happening, yeah. right? And there will be an acclimation curve, you yeah. know, in the same way that we're gonna have to get used to self-driving cars and how yeah. weird that is and is going to be sooner probably rather than later. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna have to overcome this weird icky feeling or sensibility that we have around eating what is ostensibly animal flesh without there ever being an animal, yeah. right? That's weird. You know, it's, it's weird. You know, yeah. let's just say it. Let's, let, let's yeah. not pretend that, you know, <laughs> that it's normal because it's not. But I think this is the future, mm-hmm. um, as crazy as that sounds. And in many ways, it's miraculous. It's a little, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, it's like, okay, <laughs> like, is this safe? Like, is this the evolution of GMOs? Like, what are we really doing here? What are the long-term implications of human health? And I think all of that hopefully is getting addressed and studied yeah. Yeah, yeah. diligently. Um, but presuming that that gets worked out, the idea that we're going to be engineering animal flesh and, and can kind of attune it to make make it healthier than, you know, the animals that we're raising with, right. the, you know, less saturated fat and whatever, Absolutely. tweaking it and all of that, as yeah. weird as it is, um, that's coming online. And that has the potential to literally eradicate factory farming as we exactly. know Exactly, exactly. And that, that's, that's what I'm so excited about is, you you look and as you mentioned uma and memphis meets 
attracting investments recently from Bill Gates and Richard Branson, but perhaps most excitingly from Cargill, one of the largest meat companies in in the US. Who are realizing that in order to survive, they don't want to be like the music industry. You That's right. Get passed by. Like they're going to have to get on board with this now or they're That's just right. going to get innovated right out of business. That's right. Uh, so they see that the writing is on the wall. And, you know, what I tell fellow vegans is, you don't need to eat clean meat, you know? If, if it's not something that you're interested in, that's totally fine. This is for the 98% of people that, that are looking for, for meat. And it's, it, it, it's, it's so good for animals. But as, as we briefly mentioned, you know, we are at a really crucial time um, in, in our lives, in human society and, and the health of our planet. With, with climate change, with uh, you know racing towards fish, fishless oceans by by 2048, like all of these things, that being in the middle of this the sixth mass extinct, extinction, like things are dire. We have to make some really um, meaningful changes. And clean meat uses 50% less energy. It it um, uses over 90% less land, 90% less water, emits 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, you know? So it's it's not only um, sort of an ethical savior perhaps, but environmentally as well. And as I said, we're gonna have nearly 10 billion people here by 2050. So I, I think um, we can't just wait for the entire population to have an ethical awakening on these issues. We need to have the the sustainable and ethical choice be the convenient choice the default choice you know so when the mother in michigan is going through the drive through and she's getting a burger it tastes the same the price is the same or even cheaper but it happens to be meat that is grown through cellular agriculture instead of animals that are tortured you know then i think we're starting to get to a place where um real progress is being right. made or a super tasty veggie burger or a super right? tasty veggie burger yeah 100 percent. it's a race against time yeah and it's interesting that you know we really are running out of time like yeah. when, if, when you oh, really yeah. look at what's going on environmentally yeah. like we're, we are running out of time and and it's going to be down to the wire i think i agree and and it, it's interesting that all of this technology is coming online now, almost like you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. Like we need it now, and mm -hmm. now it's happening. Can yeah. we get it up to speed in time? Because how else are we going to move forward? You know, factory farming. You know, we just can't continue down this path and expect to uh, preserve our planet. We've we've no. we've established beyond a shadow of a doubt. <clears throat> the damage that it's doing. And as we escalate towards 10 billion people, we can't continue to do it. And no. look, you know, grass fed beef ain't gonna cut it. And no. you know, this idea that we're gonna repasteurize, you know, arid lands through, it's just, it, I don't buy it. You know, no. that's not how we're gonna no. feed the planet. No. And like you said, we don't have to wait for clean meat to come to market. <laughs> we can mm -hmm. start eating a plant-based diet right, right now. Um, so we are the opposite of, of helpless in this situation. But as you said, it's going to be down to the wire. The, what's going to save us or kill us is the choices that we all make.
the choices that we make in our everyday food choices, but also the choices that we make whether we're going to become part of the, the solution or not, whether we're going to find our own unique voices and skills and talents it and use our resources in a way that is moving us towards a humane and sustainable future or moving us in in an accelerated path to destruction. Mm -hmm. And I talk in the book about some really, you know, inspiring individuals that had that aha moment, had the light bulb come on, saw what was happening, and instead of saying someone needs to do something about that, they said, I need to do something about that. I realize I am a someone. And um, you know, that's that's what one of my biggest hopes is from the book and just from Mercy for Animals work in general is that people will at the end of the day be inspired to help drive change. And and there's so many ways in which we can do that, uh, whether that starts out by changing our own diet, whether that's donating to organizations that are having an impact, or whether that's you know, starting an innovative company. I have friends that are artists that use their platform um, to inspire people to think about what's going on. I have friends that have started vegan bakeries, you know, that show people how tasty and easy it can be. I have friends that have stayed in the business mm -hmm. world so that they can earn to give. And they now have literally dozens of people around the world that are working full time on behalf of animals because of that decision. So the answer to what you can do, I think is a bit different for everyone, but the truth is that we have to do something and being an advocate and I think sort of living your values is the ultimate expression of love. It's the ultimate way of being present uh, you know, there's a quote that says activism is my rent for living on this planet. And to me, that's definitely true, but it's also you're paying double fulfilling. rent. <laughs> <laughs> you you might forward. need to have a talk with your landlord. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, you know, to me, I, it's, it's kind of this, this double win. You get to make the world a better place, but you also get to bring so much meaning into your life. And we, we live in a time where there's this kind of happiness economy and everyone is trying to figure out how am I happy? How do I become happy? You know? And I think a lot of people realize once they're down that path that, you know, a faster car or a bigger house or, you know, a, a nicer kitchen doesn't quite cut it. It's a matter of living a meaningful life. Um, something that is contributing to the world in a way that's bigger than just yourself. And for me, helping animals who are really the weakest and most vulnerable amongst us in our society is as meaningful of um, a mission as I could imagine. It's, um, to me, really telling how those in power treat those that are at their mercy. And certainly, um, you know, farmed animals literally have no choice and they have no voice um, in our system. So I, I think that when we're able to extend our circle of compassion to include those that we might know nothing about or elite, relate to the least, we benefit from it, they benefit from it, and our entire society benefits from that. That's really beautifully put. Um, I love that you said that. And I think that um, 
the idea or placing focus or putting a lens on on how this journey has girded your life with meaning mm-hmm. is part of the discussion that doesn't get enough attention, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, there's a perspective that someone like yourself is a martyr, you know, <laughs> that you're torturing yourself and 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 miserable, right? Because you're putting yourself in these dire situations yeah. um, for a greater cause. But the truth is very different from that. And I've experienced my version of that which is when you get outside yourself and you do align your actions with your values Mm -hmm. and you make your life about something greater than your personal agenda that you achieve that elusive goal that you Mm -hmm. have been seeking, which is to be contented and fulfilled and purposeful. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, it's beautiful to hear you say that. And I think that, that, um, you know, it is an environmental cause and it is an ethical cause and it is the evolution of civil rights. You know, Absolutely. it really is. It's the next thing that we need to start paying attention to. We've done a good job of sort of, you know, in a serial way, you know, working our way through the various categories of people that have been treated unfairly. And, yeah. and you know, this is where we need to put our, put our focus on, on now. And uh, you're doing a beautiful job of that. The work you're doing is, not only extraordinary, it's impactful. Like you are making a huge difference. Thank you. Um, the book is beautiful. Everybody should pick it up. Mercy for Animals, available wherever you buy your books, <laughs> right? That's right. And yeah. if somebody wants to learn more about Mercy for Animals, the organization, uh, I presume the best place to do that is to go to the website, but how else can people get involved? Yeah, you can find us online, mercyforanimals.org. You can find us on all the social media platforms, simply at Mercy for Animals. Yeah, I hope that you will find us, that you will follow us, that you will support us, that you will get the book for yourself and for others for the holiday. (laughs) It's a great holiday read. No, it is. I I love the book. And I think, think, you know, we didn't... didn't, get into it perhaps in as much detail if we had more time. But what I love about the book is the personalization to it. We were talking a little bit before the podcast. Um, you know, it's very, it, it, it sort of opens with your story. Well, it's a kind of a dramatic event and then it segues into your personal story, which I found to be very compelling. And you had said, well, I don't really want it. I didn't really want it to be about me. It's about the cause. And I'm like, yeah, but your, your story is actually super interesting. And it allowed me to more deeply engage with, you know, the things that you're passionate about and the things that you talk about in the book. And, and you did a beautiful job with that. And Thank you. Uh, I think everybody should check it out and the stories that you tell about the investigations and, and, you know, the people that you've worked with is, is really quite touching. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, as I told you, it was a vulnerable, it's a vulnerable experience to write a book about yourself. Um, there were things in the book that I hadn't even shared with my therapist (laughs) seeing for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling. Yeah. Um, but it was also really um, important to me to share the stories of these undercover investigators who operate in the shadows um, intentionally, not having their their stories told so that it can be focused on the animals. It's really the the first book of its kind that really, I think, humanizes who the people are that go undercover that are driving so much of this change. It is a it is a, a story based book um, and. As you know, it, it closes looking at the future of food and um, Uma's story and others who have found their voice um, in a way that 
is redefining the relationship that we have with food and with animals. And Right, the two Joshes at Hampton yeah. Creek and Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and the like. And Miyoko's, yeah. And Miyoko's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. Um, before we close though, can we talk a little bit about Circle V? Yeah. Which is this weekend. It's sold this, out. I know, you sold it out, <laughs> second year. Yes. Um, what was the idea behind kind of creating this event and what is it all about? I mean, by the time I put this podcast up, it will have passed, but people can <laughs> but get excited about next will, year. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm really excited about Circle V. It is, so it's a food and music event that celebrates animal rights. So it's, it's the, the vision is sort of the vegan Coachella. And I believe that that music and art is a powerful platform to inspire change and to open people's hearts and minds to think about the world and think about others in a way that um, maybe oftentimes we don't. So uh, Circle V is just this fun event that has world-class artists. I mean, this year Moby is um, headlining Waka Flocka Flame, Dream Car, um, Rari, Reggie Watts, um, and others. And then we have incredible speaker panels, which you will be on. Mm -hmm. I get to be on a panel for the second year in a row. I'm excited about that. Uh, so like just world-class speakers, you know, packed on these, these panels and then awesome vegan food. So you get something of, of everything wrapped mm -hmm. up into one. And like you said, this is the second year. It's growing um, every year, circlev.com. Um, and hopefully people can join us in 2018 for Circle V. It's, it's held here in Los Angeles. Yeah, so last year um, I attended and I was on a panel and, and I just loved it because as somebody who, I've, I've gone to a lot of veg fests, you know, I know the drill, a lot of them are very similar and, and they're great, I love all of them and I love the community, I'm not disparaging anybody, like I think it's all amazing, but there was something very different in the tone and tenor of Circle V, like it's super rock and roll, you know, yeah. like you ain't playing around. Like, no, it's, it's like, not a veg fest. No, it's not, it's like, <laughs> it's like tattoos and yeah. like rock and roll and like yeah. there's a different energy to it that's very Hollywood, you yeah. know, not in a glitzy Hollywood way, but like, when you like, if you live in Hollywood, like, oh, this is these are people in, you know, like it's it's right. very like it's very cool. Like I love the energy and the vibe and all yeah. all about it. So I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited about it as well. Yeah, cool. Right on. Well, like I said, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. You as well. Changing uh, changing hearts and minds, man. I love your message and and your work. And uh, I wish you well. And thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much. Rich. All right. Peace. All right, hope you guys dug that. Good stuff, food for thought. Be sure to pick up Nathan's new book, Mercy for Animals, wherever books are sold. And please check out the show notes for this week's show on the episode page at richroll.com. Lots of links to take your edification beyond the earbuds. We also have a full video version of this podcast available on my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash richroll. Perhaps after listening to Nathan, you're finally ready to pull the trigger and go plant-based, go vegan, or at least get more plant-centric. But I don't know, maybe you don't know how to cook. Maybe you don't have cookbooks. Maybe you don't like cookbooks. Listen up, people. My mission in life is to help you experience your version of what I have experienced eating and living this way. Everything that I do from the books to podcasts, this podcast to public speaking to my athletic endeavors are all designed to advance this purpose. And intellectually, I think you all get it yet. 
still so many people struggle with how to implement a plant-based, plant-centric lifestyle. What do I eat? What if I don't like this or that? What if I'm allergic to nuts? Where can I buy this stuff? I get these kind of questions, these kinds of emails every single day. And it's for all of these reasons that we decided to create this meal planner, the Plant Power Meal Planner, which is something I'm so proud of. It's an incredibly powerful, robust, online, mobile-friendly resource tool that takes all the mystery and all the guesswork out of this whole affair at an incredibly affordable $1.90 a week, which is basically like loose change. When you sign up, here's what you get. Thousands of plant-based recipes, thousands, unlimited meal plans and grocery lists. Everything is metric system compliant. And it's completely personalized and customized based on your specific goals, food preferences, allergies, time constraints. All of the recipes can be scaled depending upon how many people there are in your family, how many you're preparing your meals for. We have amazing customer support from a team of experts available to you seven days a week, people who live and breathe this stuff, people with graduate degrees, athletes, moms. And we even have grocery delivery in about 60 metropolitan areas. So essentially what that means is once you've selected the recipes that you like, that you prefer, it will create a grocery list. You can go to your grocery store and purchase those items or you can just have those items delivered directly to your home so you have everything you need to make these recipes. Basically, we've removed all of the barriers, all of the obstacles towards accessing and maintaining this kind of lifestyle. I'm so proud of it. So to learn more, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu at richroll.com. Uh, if you wanna support my work and this show, easiest way to do it, share it with your friends and on social media, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, the main thing is subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That one is huge. Uh, and we also have a Patreon set up uh, for those who want to support my work financially. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has done that. Uh, what else do I want to tell you? Uh, I just want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, interstitial music, Sean Patterson for graphics, David Zamet for photo portraits and video and theme music as always by Anna Lemma. Hope you guys are doing great. We're heading into the holiday season. Make sure you seal your field. Make sure you're investing in your personal well-being. You got to be your best self to be able to navigate all the insanity that this time of year brings. So I'm saying this as much to remind myself as I am to remind you uh, because we're all in this together. All right. I'll see you guys back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.